enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations. Final girl, chase after her, don't let her get away. But first, the slumber podcast massacre. Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I get together, we talk about a different movie from the horror genre, from your well-known classics, down to that rare gem, smacking its girlfriend in the face over and over and over at the back of your video store shelf. This week, Tim and I, we're going to talk about 1976. Classic. I call it classic. Sure. Harry. First Stephen King uh, novel adaptation, Carrie. Uh, Tim, this question is just one I legit don't know. So maybe this goes nowhere. Even though we went to the same school, did you go to prom? I don't remember you going to prom. Uh, uh, oh, I, yeah, I went to prom. <laughs> um, I didn't stay very long. Okay. okay. But I went to prom. <laughs> you paid for a uh, ticket. Yeah, I d- well, I take that back. I did not go to our senior prom. I don't, okay, I went to our junior, or I was a junior, um, and I remember it because you're a year ahead, so I yes. would not have been. So if you didn't go to your senior year, that would have been my junior year. No, yeah. no woman asked you. You know, you can't go as a freshman and sophomore unless invited. Uh, no older woman invited me <laughs> to prom. Surprisingly enough, so yeah. their loss. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Tim. You're right. I remember it because, well, for a few reasons, but um, I watched an episode of 90210 where someone gave, I think they were trying to like make it seem like fancy Beverly Hills style where when the group of kids were going to a dance that one of the girls gave her date a uh, radish corsage. Mm-hmm. or uh, whatever, whatever guys wear boutonnieres. And so I'm like, well, that's, that sounds kind of cool. <clears throat> so I called a local florist and asked if they would do a vegetable floral arrangement for my dates, uh, flowers, so to speak. And they did the damn thing weighed like 40 pounds. I it mean, was it was awesome. It was super cool. I ended up doing the same thing. I love that idea so much. I called them like, you made this vegetable thing. My friend, can I get one of those? And they were like, yeah, we had a blast doing that. Yeah. And it looked super great and went to the prom and got the pictures taken. And God, I don't even know if I danced or at all. But um, but yeah, I did make an appearance. All yes. right. But yeah. So no cool stories or you don't remember what you did instead of uh, be at prom? I mean, I'm sure you do. Maybe you don't want to bring it up here. <laughs> I I do. I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't like it. Actually, prom was okay. The post-prom, the, the day after was just a real bummer. So whatever, whatever. Well, then fuck it. Let's not dwell on that. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, we've got so much you know to what? talk about. Let's transition is, right into Carrie. From there, the, is, there is a prom scene in Carrie. There is a prom. Yeah. Yeah. We can fill in the gaps. Uh, so, yeah, it's Carrie from 1976. This uh, uh, listener request from uh, Nicole. It's actually her birthday. Uh, very soon, or at least this week. I don't remember uh, specifically what day. Uh, so, uh, happy birthday to Nicole. Tim, do you have anything 
Uh, well, sure, sure. Um, Let's Nicole, get right into this part. Nicole asked for something, and and by God, I'm I'm going to give it to her. <clears throat> and here we go. In three, two, one. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Nicole. Happy birthday to you. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Tim, you should sing more. Oh, I thank you. Yeah, um, happy birthday, Nicole. We're more than happy to do Carrie. Also, sorry, everyone who are now like, oh, I'm going to write it and have him sing happy birthday. That was it. One and done. <laughs> That's no all more, you got. Yeah. You can Make still it. request films. And because they're close to your birthday or whatever, maybe we'll mention that. No more singing, though. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say this. I, I think it's important to say this, especially for a listener request. Um, We're... You know, we're, we like to have fun here, but we're also honest. So if somebody requests a movie and we watch it and we cover it and we do the episode, I would just, I'd never want anybody's feelings to get hurt. On the, I mean, speaking of feelings getting hurt, there's no better movie to cover than Carrie. Right. But I would never want anybody's feelings to get hurt if we cover a movie that was suggested. And if we have, maybe we don't like it at all. Right. Maybe there are parts of it that we have to say, well, these parts are good, but you know, there were some real issues over here. I wouldn't any, want anybody to listen to quote unquote, their movie or their recommendation episode and say, oh, they hated it. Like, they just they, they're making fun of it. My right. favorite movie. <laughs> it's, but you know, we're going to be honest. So, it just so happens, Nicole, that we both like this movie. Right. I'm like, it sounds like you are setting something terrible <laughs> up, but no. Well, I know that I know that Carrie is awesome. It's fantastic. Thank goodness she didn't ask us to cover the Carrie remake because that might have not been so favorable. But uh, but for this movie, it's great. We're going to have a ton of great things to say about it. It was made a handful of years ago. So, of course, yes. there'll be some things to poke at and, and have some fun with. But I think it was a great suggestion. And um, so I am really excited. And I'm glad Nicole reached out to us. And I'm glad that she's listening. And we're excited to do this. Yep. So it's Carrie, 1976, the year of my birth. Uh, it was written by Lawrence D. Cohen. And directed by Brian De Palma, which is, I mean, just crackers. <laughs> uh, it's starring Sissy Space Bet. Sissy Sis. God damn it. <laughs> it's starring Sissy Spacek, Nancy Allen, and John Travolta. It had a budget of $1.8 million, hauling in that box office at $33.8. It was a huge hit. Here's Nan Sum. If you don't know what Carrie is, withdrawn and sensitive teen Carrie White faces taunting from her schoolmates and abuse from her fanatical mother. When strange things begin to happen to Carrie, she soon suspects. I got too many S's in this. She soon suspects she has supernatural powers. When she's invited to the prom by the empathetic Tommy Ross, she tries to let her guard down and have fun. But a prank pulled by her tormentors will soon take things on a much darker and violent path. Carrie. Yes. Um, oh, man. So great. You know, f a funny thing. Um, I don't know about you, uh, 
I'm going to say something real quick, then I'm going to ask you a question. This movie did not, for whatever reason, did not fall into the pantheon of horror movies that my friends and I were watching in, uh, like, say, middle school. So let's say the the it's about a girl, Tim. Right. And it was kind of old. I mean, I guess we were watching other movies from the 70s. Although if you were a teenage boy and not watching this movie, you're missing out. Because finally, we're getting back to one of the cores of this show, TNA. Yes. Holy mackerel, I had forgotten how loosey-goosey the T.A. was in this movie. Yeah, and not only T.N.A., but slow-motion T.N.A., which is even better. (laughs) Um, But yeah, for whatever reason, didn't watch Carrie. I I, I can't nail down the exact time that I first saw it front to back, but it got it was not that long ago. I mean, it was probably in my... I don't know, maybe 30s, I guess, or something. I mean, it took me a long time to see this movie, but I'm I'm so glad that I did. What I wanted to ask you is, because I know that you read uh, quite a bit, and I certainly know that you read a lot of Stephen King. Have you read the book, Carrie? Uh, yes, a long time ago. I don't remember much from it. That I Yeah, I mean, I don't read as much as I used to, and the reason is I barely retain anything I read. <laughs> like, I look at, like a couple things, as we learned from our Jaws episode. You know, I took two things away from that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I remember liking the book. It's very similar to this. There's not a lot. There's not a lot to mess with in this formula. You know. Well, let me ask you this just real quick because I and I mean, if you don't remember, that's fine. But I mean, it's like there- probably high school. I read it. Is there some sort of like part construct of the narrative that has to do with like the government? Like, oh, keep, that's fire starter. Okay, fire well, starter does. Well, no, that's what I thought. But then I was reading about Carrie and it was De Palma decided to not include the whole government part of oh, Carrie. Uh, maybe there is. Yeah, I, I don't, don't. I don't remember it. I, yeah. And, but either way, it wouldn't surprise me. maybe they did. And that's probably why he like made it a bigger part of Firestarter. I would oh. guess. Could be. Yeah. Uh, that would make sense. It's not unlike Stephen King to just reuse certain stuff, you know? <laughs> right. Well, speaking of that fella, um, what, what a kind of interesting background and, uh, you know, it, just a great story supporting the never give up adage um, that Stephen King at the, at the point that he writes this is is struggling he's living in a trailer he's got he's married he's got a, a baby um it's tough to make ends meet he's working as a teacher his he's married to a writer um so both of them are kind of starting their careers obviously not a lot of money rolling in at that point but he is making a little bit here and there just enough to keep himself off of welfare by um selling stuff mainly to like skin magazines like playboy and a hustler and things like that, just short stories. And he's, he's getting small checks and here and there um, he's got a little writing station set up in the, the laundry room of his, of his trailer kind of in between the washer and the dryer, a little desk there, a typewriter that is actually his wife, Tabitha's typewriter. And the joke is that he just married her because she has a typewriter. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I actually loved her. And we got along in and yeah. out of bed, but the fact that she had a typewriter, you know, didn't hurt anything. So, um, so th- those two are together kind of supporting each other in their anticipation. I mean, what, what'd what she stay with him for? Cause uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Stephen King, yeah. but he had something also of 
value that she needed. That whatever. He probably saw his talent, Tim. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Maybe the distance between the bottom of the nose and the upper lip is like something very attractive to her. I don't know. But you should grow back the mustache regardless. Anyway. Uh, but so here he is, you know, kind of on the verge of poverty here. And he was challenged by one of his publishers that were, you know, putting these short story of stories of his out. And they said, you know what? Like, I think you're scared of women. This is what they're saying to Stephen King. You're scared of, of women. And I, I bet you can't write something from a female perspective. So he takes that challenge and like the old adage goes write about what, you know, so he thought of the two saddest girls from his high school, one of whom was an epileptic and um, she kind of had uh she was she was made fun of she was prone to to seizures she kind of had a little bit of a a nervous thing with her mouth where there was a lot of like saliva there which happens sometimes yeah. um and she was horribly made fun of another girl the second girl was there was nothing quote unquote wrong with her uh, or a condition that she had. She was just very poor. She wore the same outfit to school every single day and was mercilessly teased by her classmates, which is terrible. Um, and then it was, he was finally influenced by this like really particularly fundamentalist woman that worked at the laundromat that he worked at to kind of help make ends meet. So he's kind of pulling these things together. Sadly, uh, the girl with epilepsy died from an, an epileptic seizure. The other poor girl had such bad postpartum depression that she shot herself in the stomach and killed herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh-huh. there's yeah a lot of, a lot of tragedy here, a lot of pain. And so he, he starts writing this story and He's he gets about three or four pages into it and he's frustrated. He just doesn't think anything of it. He crumples up the pages, literally throws them in the garbage. Tabitha, his wife, finds the pages, reads them. And she says, I think you really have something here like you should you should keep going. And um, he was even offered a a different teaching position and more money uh, at this time. And he was about to take that position, which was much more involved with the the school. And it was his wife that said, are, that's great, but are you going to have time to write? And he said, no. And she's like, mm-hmm. well, then you can't, you can't take that then. You know? And just amazing, the support. See, some- she did know, his, she did see his talent. <laughs> yeah. So he, he doesn't take the job. He, he takes the gamble of continuing to write. He finishes carry. He sells it for more money than he's ever seen at one time before, which is $2,500 for the rights. Wow. He's thrilled about that. They put, you know, they get some groceries, they move out of the trailer, they buy, a, 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 like, I think a Ford Pinto, you know, things are good. You know, it's 2,500 bucks, but they're, they're making the most of it. Then he gets a phone call that says uh, from his publisher that says um, that the rights for the paperback versions of the book have also now sold and that those profits are $400,000, Jeez, 200,000 of which goes to Stephen King. So $200,000 in the early seventies. And he, it's like winning the lottery. It's yeah. basically like winning the lottery. And um, so that's, that's kind of the history. I mean, yeah. You got to imagine like your average house is under a hundred thousand dollars. Like, so you can yeah. own a house and still have more than half of your money left over from oh, one yeah. paycheck. 
That's oh, absolutely. Insane. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, and if you're smart, you don't buy a house with that. No, you know what he did? Home ownership sucks. Don't do it. <laughs> it does. Landlords does. suck too. Guess what? There's you can't win. There's no way to win. Yeah. I bought a house, turned around and sold it in a year and a half because I'm like, fuck this. No, he gets I've been trying to destroy my marriage for two decades just so I can get an apartment again. (laughs) Yeah. It's so easy to keep clean, but I mean I still struggle with it. Uh, but yeah, um, it's true. You know what he did buy with that money? Um, so he gets this news. Tabitha is not at home. He's by himself. He just found out that he basically won the lottery. His knees are buckling. He's having a hard time keeping from passing out, but he wants to get something for Tabitha. He wants to get her the most luxurious thing that he can buy. And, um, he goes out, uh, because apparently it, like this money is like instantaneously, they just put into his bank account or right. whatever. He goes out. The only place that he can find open is a like a drugstore. And he bought the most luxurious item that he could find for her. And it was a hairdryer, oh. <laughs> a blow dryer, that, um, that you know, true which she probably thought, like, where the hell did you get the money to buy me a blow dryer? And it's right. like, I can buy you a truckload of blow dryers, uh, but very, very sweet. And so that's sort of the the beginning of the book. The beginning of the movie is that Brian De Palma had a friend who was friends with Stephen King and said, hey, my buddy wrote this book. It's really, really good. You should check it out. De Palma reads it, loves it, uh, says, yeah, I want to direct this. And he uh, but then it kind of goes nowhere. Nobody has really purchased the rights to the to the movie yet to make a movie. Um, So that kind of goes nowhere for six months. Then he finds out that it has been picked up. Um, and I think it was by, oh, I believe it was by uh, Fox bought the rights and they gave it to a producer that they had a multi-picture deal with named Paul Monash. Yeah. And uh, Monash is not really keen on De Palma and doesn't necessarily want to use him as a director, but other executives at Fox, actually it ended up going to United Artists, um, pressured the the producer Paul Minash to to hire De Palma and so he kind of begrudgingly did and that's how De Palma got to direct it. Let me quick tangent here. What do you think of Brian De Palma as a director? He's what I call handsy, and uh, <laughs> he's he's one of those directors that he he's very active as a director. The direction of his films are is just as much a character in the movie as any of the characters themselves are. He's very active the 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 camera movements, the the camera effects, the color saturation. He's like a giddy kid that can't stand to just, you know, be on the sidelines. He's got to jump in and and be involved himself. Similar to um <clears throat> well his biggest inspiration, Hitchcock, um, yeah. who's, who's always got a little bit of a wink, wink quality to his movies. Certainly uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino, same way. He's always got to put a nudge, nudge in there and put his own little signature on it, even mm-hmm. though he's behind the camera. Um, so I but I like him. I mean, I like I like showbiz. I like showmanship. I like um, artistic fun. And so, you know, is he. He's like the anti-Stanley, basically. But yeah. but I I like that. It's fun. Kind of cut out, but you said anti-Stanley Kubrick, right? 
Yeah, anti-Stanley okay, yes. Kubrick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Brian, he's got a really weird filmography. Like looking at it, or like you hear like the name Brian De Palma to me is like I instantly go, oh yes, uh legend, legendary director Brian De Palma, but if you ask the random person, name me three Brian De Palma films, they're not going to be able to. Now, if you told them, hey, this movie is a Brian De Palma film, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Like Mission Impossible or, you know, right. Like if you're like, wait, that was Brian De Palma. Like he did the first Mission Impossible or, you know, and but then he'll, you know, and then Scarface and you're like oh okay yeah I can see that he's an amazing filmmaker that's like a you know epic legendary movie but then he also did Bonfire of the Vanities like one of the biggest bombs of all time right Um, didn't he also do Snake Eyes he did yes and he did Snake (laughs) Eyes with Nicolas Cage like he and and then a mission to Mars after that and so it's like none of his movies feel connected with each other you know there's never any kind of overlapping theme he loves doing like uh i was just uh i was thinking about robocop because nancy allen is in carrie and she's the female cop in robocop yeah um and i was thinking about you know paul verhoven he does a lot of movies about uh you know there's a lot of fascism stuff just from like his upbringing being Dutch and I mean, anti-fascism, he's not a fascist guy, you know, but still (laughs) that authoritarianism presents itself in a lot of his movies. I can't say like Brian De Palma loves making a movie about blank. Right. No, you're exactly right. I was trying to get to that line right there. Yeah. And, Part of that is is kind of to his detriment because he's lumped in with a lot of his. I mean, his contemporaries were like Lucas and Spielberg, and those guys went on to do these huge, big things. I think it was De Palma was sort of talked about in those same circles, but he was always choosing content that was uh, a little more on the underbelly of things. And if nothing else, what you're getting at is it's the lack of consistency. The lack of consistency in like, this is a Brian De Palma movie. Like, you know what a Spielberg movie is. You know what a Lucas movie is. Yeah. What's a Brian De Palma movie? <laughs> right. it's, it's it's either amazing be. or completely forgettable. <laughs> right. So, yeah, he's uh, he takes some more chances. Um, But I do. I, I think this he, one's amazing. Yeah. And he tries a lot of things and it's. Oh, man, there were there. And we'll talk about him. But there was like one particular shot in this movie where I'm like, how is he doing that? Like, what what is happening with the camera and these actors that that is making this work? And um, we'll we'll get to that shot later. But uh, but yeah, it's um, he's got a really, really. While it may be diverse, he does have a strong hand in the vibe and the look of his films and they are not cookie cutter. Um, There's this weird, I mean, there's a lot of specific things that we'll speak to, but there is something very interesting about this movie. And I don't know if it has to do with the film stock or the lighting or whatever, but there's this sort of like hazy quality to this movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean by hate? Like it's, it's, it's a shimmer dreamish. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, I feel that, popped up a lot in the seventies though. Like that yeah. was kind of a thing that was going on. 
a technique that was used a lot. Yeah. I don't know what the te- technique is, <clears throat> but yeah. yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's, so it's, it's got a really great look, but regardless of who directed it or who wrote it or what kind of level of haziness it has, there's no movie here without Sissy Spacek. Um, I mean, my God. And here's the great part is that you had a lot of interesting people auditioning for Carrie. You got Farrah Fawcett, you got, um, it was actually, they had dual auditions with Star Wars. So really? they they did a combined. So yeah, so anybody that you see in Carrie could have just as easily been in Star Wars and vice versa. Um, so they they held the group auditions together and were deciding among the same group of people who to cast in both movies, which is really cool. Huh. Um, there was an actress by the name of Betsy Slade who De Palma really liked, and she basically had the role of Carrie all the way for the majority of the audition process. He also really liked the idea of Amy Irving as Carrie, who Amy Irving plays, goes on to play Sue in the the movie that we have. But, um, and she's goes on to marry Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. Four years. Yeah. And then he met, then he did uh, temple of doom and met his current wife. Well, that's what happened. Spielberg came to the set of Carrie and asked out every single girl there. And she was the only one that said yes. And then he married her. So, you know, so you can tell when this. Yeah. yeah he's then he made Jaws out. and that never happened again. Right. So you've got you've got uh, Glenn Close auditioning. You've got uh, Linda Blair auditioning um, and this this sort of relatively unknown actress named Betsy Slade essentially having the part. Then this guy named Jack Fisk. Uh, who was uh, an artistic director that had worked with De Palma says to De Palma, Hey, there's this girl and I really think you should take a look at her. Um, I I think she'd be great for this. Yes. She's my wife, but please just, just give her an audition. And De Palma said that he read Sissy Spacek for everybody, for Sue, for, for every character that there is. Chris, she read everything. And then her last thing that she read for was Carrie. And he said it was so good that it made all of the other actresses look silly, like wow. just silly. Like it would be ridiculous to cast anybody but her. And good move on his part because she is God damn heartbreaking and wonderful in this yeah this is one of those roles and performances that is just it's iconic and you can't imagine anyone else playing the part right or working for anyone else that's and that's why i like the remake is like like i'm not against across the board remakes if you have something to bring or you know there are bad movies that you could remake into good movies sure um but yeah, when you take something like as iconic as that and then try to put a new, you know, well, let's that's not good enough. Right. Like right. here's here's what we've really been needing. Chloe Grace Moretz. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do like her work, but yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she's great. She's yeah. great. Uh, <laughs> Nothing against her. Right. Because, yeah, if you're an actor and and offered this, sure, why not? You know? Yeah. And um, and there was some uh, there was some speaking of of actresses and being offered roles. There was a lot of reluctance on the part of a good amount of this cast because of the heavy nudity early on in the film. And uh, the funny thing is, though, is that they 
I think they filmed a good chunk of Sissy Spacek's close-up nudity first. And then when the rest of the actresses saw that and saw how it looked kind of beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, they were like, uh, yeah, we, we want to do that too, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, yeah, the, you're right. This, what you said earlier, I mean, this movie is, has a lot of nudity and it, and it sort of, was it, the, but it never feels gratuitous. No, no. Or, but, or force like in, when we did the, the OG slumber pod or slumber party massacre, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That was like Roger Corman nudity. Yes. Brian De Palma nudity. I guess there you go, Brian De Palma. I can at least differentiate differentiate your nudity. <laughs> right. And the thing is, um, he is just decried as a misogynist. I mean, he's had to fight that off. De Palma has for the majority of his career. And I think that part of that is that if you're Roger Corman and you're making Roger Corman movies, you kind of get a pass because that's just Roger Corman. But if you're Brian De Palma and you're kind of in these same conversations with the Spielbergs and the Lucases and whatever, and you decide to have these prolonged scenes of nudity, uh, you become an easier target for people to say like, well, you're supposed to be a respected director, but what's with all this nudity, you must be a misogynist. And so he's had to fight that off throughout his career. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with it because first of all, he gives us the most perfect two opening scenes that you could have in this movie. The opening scene is the volleyball game, the gym volleyball game. And what is more traumatic to a teenage person than gym team sports and getting picked or not getting picked or sucking at the sport. Right. Or having like athletes that are like the one who caused the game, you to lose the game. Yeah. I've been that guy. I don't know how many times it's horrific. And the thing is like, it's so God dang sad when you see, you know, they're, they're making fun of her and, Oh, we, we would have won if she wasn't on our team. And then PJ souls in a, in an inspired moment of, of uh, ad libbing fucking hits her in the face with her hat, like takes off her cap yeah. and swats her in the face with it. Then actually PJ souls was going to have a much smaller role in this movie. But when she did that to Palma's like, I like that girl. Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I like that so, hat. So, yeah. And um, so we get that we go from that moment to the shower scene. Okay. So the locker room scene, and this is where we get the slow-mo, a lot of nudity. Um, But at the, at the essence of this movie, we're talking about females, the essence of femininity, the the very essence of femininity Mm -hmm. with, with uh, Carrie, kind of like coming onto her telekinetic powers via her, the beginning of her menstrual cycle. Yeah. And um, which is a really interesting choice. Uh, I'm glad that, that they went that way with it because it's, it's not, uh, it's not unheard of to make that connection between the power of a menstrual cycle and, and um, other worldly things like in, in native rituals, I can tell you that if a woman is on her period or as natives say on her moon, um, then she is not allowed to take part in any sort of spiritual ceremony because the power of her menstrual cycle will counteract whatever is happening in the ceremony. So she has to be excused from the ceremony because that that that's considered the menstrual cycle is considered like one of the most powerful things. Uh-huh. So I think it's a really cool choice to have that be the genesis. It also her. sounds like a way to exclude a woman from something, though. Well, which is how it's also used. I'm not saying that specifically is, but there are plenty of dudes who are like, oh, 
I'm sorry, because of your menstrual cycle, you cannot participate in this. Well, it's just, but I mean, not because it's so powerful, because it's (laughs) gross. Get out of here. (laughs) Well, who knows? But I mean, I, I, the, the premise is supposed to be that it's, it's powerful. Right. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's an amazing way to start it. And from what I understand, um, I think that in the book, I mean, you would know more about this, but in the book that the telekinesis is featured a lot more heavily, but De Palma decided early on, he's like, I don't want to have a bunch of things floating around the screen on wires because it's just going to look silly after a while. And I'd rather have it tied to moments of Carrie's like extreme emotion. And I think that was an awesome choice yeah. because it makes it more kind of badass and and almost scarier in a way that it, that it has that lack of control. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need. It, and I'm sure in the remake, there probably is some like moment where she's sitting in her room and just making like things swirl around her and shit like like, yeah, I could see them going that far just because they can with the technology. But all the things that she does yes at the end like there's a lot more of it because that's the climax that's fine uh but as she's discovering it yeah it's such small subtle you know just one object moves that's it yeah Uh, and it's so much more effective yeah and we and and you know there are forces at play here that um while carrie's power may be supernatural um, it's not to downplay the negative power of cruelty. And that's that's a really center, like a strong center point or or, or cornerstone of this movie is, is people's cruelty towards others. And that's the thing, like we live in a day and an age now where people want to compartmentalize groups that are that are the cruel ones like, well, they're this color. So they're worse or they're this gender. So they're worse. Guess what? There are a lot of asshole men out there that are fucking predatorial jerks and, and awful human beings. And guess what? There are some cruel ass, awful women in this world as well. It it does not differentiate between one gender or another. People have had to suffer at the hands of assholes in every different shape, size, color, and gender yeah. all throughout time. And guess what? Whenever something's ruined, it's because of some asshole. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the and that's the main quality. It's not because they were a woman or a man or right. just people might asshole. pick on that, but it's really just kind of their assholeish nature of their actions that makes it bad yeah um, so here we see some since some- john travolta and nancy allen the same asshole like they're both <laughs> right. just huge assholes and i don't differentiate between either of them yeah like if 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 yin yang was an asshole <laughs> it would be those two swirling around each other <laughs> the rim job of yin right. yang and you uh, know what there's a little bit of john travolta asshole in the nancy allen asshole <laughs> Right. Yeah. And vice versa. That's right. So, so yeah. And and it's, it's so easy to, um, to love Carrie in this movie. And it's so easy to dislike the people that are cruel to her and thank God for the character of, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have it written down, but the gym teacher, um, who kind of takes Carrie under her wing and, you know, sees how hard life is for her and tries to defend her. 
maybe she goes to some unorthodox levels of uh, of you know handling that by slapping students across the face and and uh, that sort of thing. But it feels right in some way, you know. Um, but yeah, just um, getting back just real quick to you know those the beginnings of this movie and that locker room scene and where we still or where we kind of first see the use of the telekinesis. This is where we're seeing this movie exude with style kind of going back to what we're talking about with the Palma. Yeah. This movie's got style for days. It could have been super straight ahead, you know, by the numbers, um, you know, no interesting camera work, no interesting effects, but the Palma really serves it up in a stylistic way. And, um, and it's, it's fantastic. And so yeah. immediately, like, isn't it kind of funny with this movie that we, we just don't, we don't have a lot to work with here. We don't, we haven't been given much background. We get one scene of cruelty yeah. on the volleyball court and we get another scene of cruelty in the locker room, which we, where she starts her period and is terrified because her mother didn't inform her. And pretty much we got it. Yeah. We, we've got, well, see there, they do this kind of like cheap thing where like everyone at this school is friends except for with Carrie. You know what I mean? Like she's <laughs> yeah. the only one picked on. Like there's the girl uh, and I forget her actress name now, but she like in 10, 10 years after this, she plays like the 45 year old secretary in Ferris Bueller's <laughs> day off. Right. Yeah. But she's in this as a high schooler. I even said when I was watching this, with my daughter and I'm like, I bet that girl with the glasses is super glad Carrie exists or else she would be the one that the entire <laughs> school picked on you know yeah i dude i saw her i've seen this movie plenty of times before like i said maybe not as much as some of my other ones but i've seen it plenty of times this was the first time that i'm like holy fuck that's grace <laughs> yes that's grace from ferris bueller's yeah holy shit. <laughs> but yeah she's a high schooler in this like it's insane um but yeah so yeah there's there, there aren't a lot of dynamics we really need to know but even in that, and here's here's something that uh, kind of blew me away about this movie. Um, but now, then looking back, I'm like, maybe I'm too cynical because you. I feel through the whole movie because it feels like everyone's against Carrie, right? And so, sure, what as even Sue is chucking, you know, tampons at her in the shower. Uh, but it isn't until the teacher intervenes and fucking roughs Sue up. Like I love, she like fucking grabs her and shakes her. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, you, you, I guess for the character Sue, she did kind of have a little revelation right there. Like, Holy shit. What am I doing? Right. It's not conveyed very well. So when she's like, has her boyfriend take Carrie out and you just know, you know, he's a jock, he's popular. So my brain is already like, he's the bad guy. Yeah. You know? Uh, and then we see people she hangs out with also be fucking horrid people. Yeah. I'm just like, these two are also bad and this is all part of a setup. And it's not until the very end when she, cause she shows up to the school to see the end. And I'm like, she's here to see the prank. And then she sees the rope and just the look on her face. And you have this realization like, oh, wait, she is a good person. Like she's there, yeah. not, like realizing she's not in on it was just blew me the fuck away. And I'd seen this movie and I'd read the book and that just wasn't anything that sat with me. And I totally forgot about it. And that 
uh, uh, Tommy wasn't in on it and he's kind of shocked. Like he kind of has a great slow-mo, like what the fuck (laughs) moment, you know? And like that part blew me away and just uh, annihilated my perception of so many characters, you know? Yeah. Um, And I loved that. And I, I'm sure it was intentional or maybe I'm just too dumb and didn't read into that. But cause there, cause there's a part where, the the uh the gym teacher miss collins right is that her name it, it, whatever her name is she you know because tommy asks carrie out and she uh, freaks out and cries and she finds out it's because he asked her to the prom and she like brings them into the office and is like let's be fucking real here like <laughs> no one's inviting carrie to the prom especially tommy what why you know and and she's, you know, it's like, well, we want her to feel good. And, you know, and the teachers even like, you know, wouldn't you feel weird uh, if yeah, you're like not going to the prom or or what people would think? And she's like, we don't care what people think. And just like the way Tommy kind of reacts, like he kind of laughs and doesn't know what to say. I was like, what a dick. <laughs> Like even still in that moment, I'm like, this guy is just like going, kind of going along with it. Uh, and he obviously doesn't know what to say. So he doesn't really feel it. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Sure. And that's the, I think that that I'm, I'm, I'm actually really glad that, that his character does react that way at that moment. It's not that he's super against the plan. He's just kind of like, I mean, for God's sake, at, at that age, all you're trying to do is is not stand out and 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 fit in and go unnoticed and be liked. And that's all that matters. So in that moment, he's still very much existing in that world. That's why it makes it so cool when we get to the dance and he actually is realizing like, wow, Carrie is is pretty and she's really sweet. And you really genuinely start to feel him feeling something for this girl yeah. and um whether it's true love or not i, I you know they don't yeah, there's still kind of that unsaid thing even if the prank doesn't happen then at the end he's like okay i'm going back to my girlfriend now you know right right like there would still kind of be that but the intention was pure and i liked it yeah it wasn't malicious i think it i think it what you're saying speaks to the the level of cruelty that we see and the level of empathy that we have for Carrie literally makes us forget that there are good people in the world. Right? <laughs> like so that when we do see it, we're like, no, everybody's in on this. Everybody wants to hurt Carrie. But it's like, holy, holy God, like Sue has a conscience. She has a heart. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's I'm so glad that that part is in the movie. And you're right. I forget about it every single time I see this, that she wasn't in on it. I was uh, skimming over the book synopsis while you were saying something a little earlier. Her and Sue have like a telekinetic connection, like a telepathic connection. Oh, kind of in the book. And so they like Carrie like emits a signal and she can feel her signal. something weird. Then there is something at the, it's almost it's like at the end of the book, then it's almost like a post carry. Like now, how do, how do, how does the local govern, you know, how does the town deal with the, the chaos carry has brought upon it and, you know, government lockdowns and things like that. So yeah, it looks like that was a good idea to just leave that. That was like at the end of the book. I oh, okay. can't even, 
that's classic Stephen King. Like, all right, too much, dude. Too much. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no. Um, and uh, and and speaking of too much, um, you know, thankfully somebody, you know, De Palma put on his editing hat for those aspects of King's. Oh, did De Palma need to put on a little bit more of an editing hat in making the movie? Um, it, it, you and I were talking before about there being some elements to this where it's like, well, it, there's just some head scratching moments. Yes. Um, you mentioned the moment where there are some guys trying on tr- uh, tuxes, getting ready for the prom and like the, the speed of the film speeds up yeah. for, only for a couple of lines to the point that you asked me if it was like a more of a technical thing. Like, did your version do that too? <laughs> right. but I just thought there was something with the file that I had. It's weird. Here's the thing. Um, it, it, this doesn't speak directly to that moment or some other moments that we've talked about, but I think it's a little bit of insight um i can't remember who it was one of the the bigger magazines at the time that would review films called carrie camp um and and called it campy Mm. and somebody asked de palma what he thought about that and his response was that he's like are they are they really using that archaic of a word like he was he was pissed you could tell he was married and he's like this is a movie about adolescence and the tone of the film is at times going to be adolescent. And I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'll go with you on this. So I think some of those scenes like where they speed up the film there, like where there's that weird sort of um, gym teacher punishing the girls in their detention by making them do a bunch of calisthenics out in the field that we watch all of. Right. And there's that weird, like goes on forever quirky 70s like music that has a really strange like comic tone to it but there's really no punchline like if at the end of the calisthenics some girl would have leaned over to another girl and said something like boy i'd rather have expulsion than this like something like that like that would have at least had it make some like it would have given it some sort of punchline right oh it's just that weird scene and then it cuts to carrie in the library yeah well yeah and it it builds up i do like uh it kind of builds up to nancy allen's character uh what's her what's her name again chris uh chris yes to chris being like I, I'm not putting up with this anymore. Like I'm, we're, I'm rebelling against the detention. Right. And you know, she goes up and, and confronts the gym teacher and then like turns around. She's like, she can't make us do it. If we all stand together <clears throat> and they're all like, we're not. <laughs> and, but I know like that character, like <clears throat> being a, the shit that she is grows up to like, never vote in favor of a union ever. Like even even though in that moment she knows it's the best way if we if we band together we can get our demands met, uh, but then she certainly grows up to be like uh, get a job you fuck and uh, pay you ten dollars get out of here. <laughs> yeah, she, I I would imagine that she's gonna <laughs> trend in that direction. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah, and she what a good choice like um that that actress is pretty like she's pretty in that sort of like cute 80s way like i mean this is the 70s but she has that kind of like rounded features button nose like she's just cute kind of like a belinda carlisle like just a cute cute girl um but yeah she does a great job at just being nasty and unlikable um despite being cute um and then uh 
Yeah. And then the coach, you know, gives her a nice fucking hard slap across the face. <laughs> Dude, man. And, you know, like, did people hit each other this much before our time? Well, was I that d- just commonplace where I know that, yes, like SWAT, like spankings were a thing in school. You know, yeah. thankfully, those aren't not anymore. But just to like crack a kid across the face. Well, I remember being at a Fourth of July party at my aunt's house. And we were in the backyard and she had, you know, like the plastic uh, tablecloths and she <laughs> took styrofoam cups, turned them upside down and then stuck the American flags, you know, into the styrofoam cup was uh, the centerpiece. And my cousin, uh, one of my younger cousins uh, was there. And he was just, you know how like younger kids just say stupid shit. Like they don't even think about it. They just stuff comes out of their mouth. He was probably like 10 years old or whatever. He we're sitting at the picnic table and uh, you know, some people are swimming, some people are playing over there, whatever he's sitting across from my grandpa and um, this 10 year old ish cousin of mine just goes, I hate the flag. My grandpa just goes like across the table and just swats the shit out of his face. And uh, so, yes, in answer to your question. Yeah. People slapped each other a lot more. Oh, damn. (laughs) And I, I actually wrote down a note as I was watching this and I just wrote down quote slap you know, semicolon, the movie, like this is, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of slapping in this movie. Yeah. Unfortunately, a bulk of it is done by John Travolta to Nancy Allen. Like, yeah. Isn't it? It's a little cringy to watch. It now, is isn't very it? cringy to watch. Like I was shocked. Like I had a legit, like, Oh, Whoa. Reaction. Well, like, there, there was, this- and then when it kept happening, I'm like, oh, please stop this. There was this sort of like cat and mouse, thing between men and women that rolled up violence with romance back then. And I even did, I was in a play once where uh, there is a woman that's being hysterical. She slaps me. I slap her back. She faints. And then I like sweep in and, and uh, like she lands in my arms and then I carry her and set her on the couch. So in some ways, it's like, ooh, what a romantic scene. Like he slapped her across the face, but then swooped her up and carried right. her in his arms. And it's like, I don't know. There was a lot of that back then. There's right. a lot of that. Like, like somehow violence equates like I don't if I don't hit you, I don't really care about you. Right. This means that I care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but thankfully, the, but- sensitive men like us, Tim, have. Moved beyond such primitive means of showing affection. Yeah. Not to say that some people still don't like to be slapped in certain. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, dude, if you want me to do that. Okay. But I'm not going to do it. Cause you said something I don't like, like those are two very different things. You know, who should have been slapped more is John Travolta as he's pouring a beer over apparently every part of his face, but his mouth. Dude, He can't every drink that he has in there. Cause there's, he's like, you know, drinking moonshine or whatever when they're at the prom and his face is glistening like he cannot get a liquid between his lips. <laughs> yeah. That he, beer, though, is a definite challenge for him. Like, yes. that was like, get it frothy. So people know that it's really a beer. Like he, he looked like he was told to not just drink it normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that what was going there, uh, what they were going for there that di- that we didn't need to happen is that. I think De Palma was saying, you know, drink that beer. Let some of it be all over your face (laughs) so that when the cops pull up alongside of you, 
it heightens the joke like, oh, shit, he's got beer all over his face and he's trying to just nod at him like, no, nothing to see here. Right. You know, so I think it was probably intentional because how the, why the fuck else would you do that? Right. He's got a big mouth, for God's sake, like just get it in there. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one of those kind of funny, quirky things in this movie. And, and again, there's some head scratchy moments. There's certainly some um interesting outfit uh time capsules that we get to enjoy the tommy's tux is absolutely mm. ridiculous how anybody could think that like oh you look really handsome in that fucking clown outfit that you have on right. um well yeah it's like how did ruffles become a thing because even the characters in this present during the time are like no ruffles those are dumb right like, when, who wore them first and people were like yeah <laughs> just 1700s i know like the style of the 70s uh it's it's just mind-boggling how drastically and quickly it changed over the course of 10 years like it's nuts i'm gonna blame quaaludes because do you remember (laughs) what like your spelling book looked like in like second grade where there's like you know like some guy with like his legs stretched out really long across the page and he's like walking yes looked like you were on acid and you're like eight or seven yeah Um, it was just the style of the time. kids books aren't going to illustrate themselves (laughs) (laughs) so um so yeah it's it's a fun movie to watch in that regard it's also like a super cool technical movie to watch what i was talking about earlier with the scene that blew my mind and it was it was so simplistic but i i couldn't wrap my mind around how they were doing it and i found out um at the prom tommy is dancing with carrie and they're kind of going for this sort of like carrie is is she's like in a dream i mean it's she's here with this cute boy she's at the prom she would have never ever imagined that this could ever happen so it's like literally like a dream come true for her and they're spinning and there's this and let's not split hairs here long scene between my god it's so long and they're spinning and spinning and the camera is also spinning but i'm like how am i not getting dizzy how are they not getting dizzy how are they doing this yeah and what it is is um because it's like spinning in the opposite direction so they are like fucking cooking in their spin like it looks like they're spinning so fast just from perspective i'm glad you have some insight on it because yes i saw that and i was like i hope they only had to do this one take because no way they're not vomiting after this (laughs) well i i think that you i I think that you actually already hit the nail on the head it's the spin seems amplified by the fact that we're going in two different directions so you have the actors on a sort of a metal circular plate where they, so they were also being enhanced and okay. So they are spinning in one direction. The camera is going around them in the opposite direction. So that's why it looks like we're sort of spinning, but sort of feels like we're standing still is because we're spinning in opposite directions. I'm sure that it was, there was still some element of pukishness after they got done (sighs) filming it, but it's a really, neat effect yeah because um, even if you try to i was trying to like put my perspective in because like yeah you you can tell that they are spinning the opposite way but it's they're doing it so fast i'm like there's no way they are just like doing a natural dance spin like they are so 
like moving themselves. Yeah. Good to know they wouldn't have to do that. Like they were being helped with a plate or something. Cause yeah. man, that's a lot of like foot shuffling and <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody could get mad about somebody just absolutely tripping the fuck <laughs> over each other's shoes and right. messing that up. But yeah, no, it's very cool effect. Um, another couple cool effects, uh, a lot of slow-mo in this movie, a lot of it. And I had remarked to you before, what really struck me about the slow-mo in this movie, and I think I have it figured out. The slow-mo in this movie is so well done that while you can tell it's in slow motion, it does still have a sort of deliberate pace to it that it almost feels like, is this slow motion, but not as slow as it normally is? Like, what is it about this that is making it so watchable the way that you would watch something if it was in real time? And then the way in like a modern action movie where there's a slow-mo moment and you sort of take yourself out of it and you're just watching the effect more than what's happening in the scene. Yeah. But we're still really watching these scenes almost as if they weren't in slow-mo, but they are. And what I found out is, is that, De Palma said it's 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 very, very technical for the editor. Like they have to get themselves into like a slow-mo rhythm so that the scenes that they're putting across uh, still have a rhythm and a flow to them despite being slow motion. So I think really there's no magic to the effect here. It's just that we as an audience, the slow-mo scenes are so long and extracted that we just get used to it. We just yeah. get used to that visual. But it's yeah, really cool. Because I as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, I knew there was a uh, slow-mo in it, but I can't really any point to any point where I was like, too much. You know? So I yeah, it, it just worked whenever they used it. Yeah. I'm like watching a uh oh, I'm trying to think. I can't think of the director now. There's one uh he did the second Mission Impossible movie. Let's keep that theme going. Oh, are you talking about uh, John Woo? John Woo, thank you. My God, his slow-mo is oh, yeah. uh, unbearable. Right. And yeah, because it, remember the whole the whole freaking scene where Carrie stands up uh, and wins the award of prom queen or whatever, that whole long stretch that's of them true. making their way up, that's all slow-mo. Um, what's really cool before that, I mentioned to you that some of, of the scenes in this movie and some of the, um, the effects I referred to as Looney Tunes. And what I mean by that is the cartoon. Um, <laughs> the one scene in particular that really stands out is when you mentioned it already, when Sue goes to the dance to, we're assuming just see Carrie happy. You know, yeah. she she goes to the dance and then she happens to see the rope that the bucket of pig's blood is rigged up to. She sees it. But the way that De Palma shows it to us is like following it along the stage, going up the, you know, the wall behind it going over. It's kind of like a Tom and Jerry episode <laughs> where like if they wanted to show you an elaborate like Tom trap that he's right. for Jerry, they would do like this like yeah. shot, you know? And so it really is. <laughs> right. So it really does have this almost like cartoonish quality to it, which is is super cool. Um, but we would be remiss to uh, not mention the use of split screen, which oh. Brian De Palma loves. 
and we would have had a ton more. It's even the poster for the movie is a, is a split screen. Right. You know, it's funny that you, you, I always just was under the impression that he just friggin' loved split screen. And that's why he used so much of it in, in several of his movies. But um, it's actually a very practical reason why he uses it. He feels like it, it is outdated and distracting to do the conventional camera and editing work of when somebody is kind of creating an action or creating a situation that the camera has to show them, then it has to show what the the results of what they're doing and then cut back to them and then back to the action and that it's disorienting. And he thought, why I'm going to have to cut back to Carrie standing there drenched in pig's blood with this look on her face. I'm going to have to do that like 20 times, (laughs) you know? So rather than do that, just do a split screen. And that way you've always got Carrie on one side looking like fucking awesome, badass, powerful Carrie that she is. And people get absolutely fucking blasted with the power. <laughs> yeah. It's- yeah. It works incredibly well. And yeah, there's watching it. You, it's not distracting. Uh, and, you know, and it doesn't stay on Carrie the whole time either. Like the yeah. split screen will cut to other stuff. So yeah. you're just getting twice as much movie in half the time. <laughs> right, right. Because it is just kind of a chaos scene. Like I don't, you know, you don't you don't need things to play out too specifically. So you can just kind of overload your your brain with too much imagery and you still understand what's going on. You know, it's funny. I think that what you just said there, maybe in 1976, it might have seemed like a lot to watch at one time. I don't think audiences today would have <laughs> any problem. Now, yeah, <laughs> we watch a and lot. Maybe of that's why it didn't. You know, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, OK, sure. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, speaking of that, <laughs> that little scene that I, I mentioned the where uh, Carrie is drenched in pig's blood, um, obviously the most iconic scene and an image in this movie. And it's been parodied uh, all over the place in, in popular culture. Uh, it's funny how it never matters how many times I see this movie. Every time that slow-mo starts and they're waiting for the name to be called and Carrie's name gets called. And I just always let out this deep sigh where it's like, oh, <laughs> I, I know what's coming. Right. She's so happy. It's so dreamy. This music, beautiful music is playing. And it's like, you just know, like you want to say like, well, maybe this is the time where she's just fine. And just right. they, they go off the stage together and start dating and everything's great. But it, <laughs> of course never happens that way. And, um, she gets dumped with that pig's blood. And I think this is what is ultimately really tragic is that when the pig's blood hits her and we have that <laughs> classic, they're all going to laugh at you um, repeated line. And then we you also heard that Adam Sandler sketch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's actually what made me revisit the movie was hearing that. And then remembering that was in Carrie. And then I like, so that was probably the last time I watched Carrie was when that, comedy album came out oh wow yeah we loved that yeah yeah the longest p the longest yeah. p is classic <laughs> um but uh yeah so it, it's uh it's this iconic moment and it's what's really sad about it is that even the people that tr- the few people that tried to be nice to carrie she sees them as 
betraying her like that gym coach, the gym coach saying, I promise like, you're going to love this. It's going to be great. Trust me. She says, trust me. You should go to the prom and all this stuff. So now she even turns on her. Yeah. Um, And she kind of gets at the worst too. Like that. She just feels so bad. Yeah. That like swinging down piece of prop or whatever it is that just gets her right in the gut. Yeah. Yeah. It's harsh. Cause like, and none of the kids kind of really, I mean, none of the kids really deserved it because in actuality, the only one who's really laughing is PJ souls. Like her, her and her boyfriend are also huge. They're just huge assholes <laughs> overshadowed by even bigger assholes. Uh, but those two are also the worst. And, you know, maybe things don't happen the same if she's not trying to provoke the laughter. Like that's, I like, that's how, like, she's such an asshole and I hate her probably more than Nancy Allen. Cause she's just kind of the sniveling one that goes along with it and helps yeah. them, you know? Uh, well, this kind of makes it worse. This is the problem. And we've talked about it with other movies. Therein lies the problem with vengeance because it, because it's such a baseline instinctual response that it's really hard to say if it's going to be measured properly and, doled out to the people who really deserve it and right. and is it going to be doled out in a level that is that is too much because uh like like i was saying earlier um the the thing is you know every time i see this movie i'm i'm i know what's coming when she's going to get the pig's blood and then every time after it happens as unevolved of a sense as it may be you can't help but sit there and say get them that's get him, Carrie. You true. fucking you you get him, and you are cheering for her to fuck these people, like kill them. You're cheering for her to kill them. Yeah, and that's very because, yes. Well, a lot of them are not laughing at her in actuality. They have been mean to her, right? In the movie, yeah. And it's really dangerous because that's the that's the Columbine mentality. Like I've been made fun of for so long. I'm going to show these people. I'm going to get guns, and then what do you do? You end up killing innocent people people that were mean to you probably didn't deserve to be shot and killed, you know? So it's, it's a dangerous slippery slope that is vengeance, but here we are rooting like hell for her. And, and, you know, it's just, it's just a, uh, an instinctual thing that this poor girl has suffered. God, we've all seen people suffer like that before. And if you've ever in your life been teased about something that is beyond your control, it's, it's soul crushing. And I'll, I will refrain from going into a lot of personal um, <laughs> like uh, just stories of that. Thankfully I, I haven't had it worse as bad as everybody, but I think that probably most people out there have felt at least a taste of what that soul crushing being made fun of pain can be. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, it makes you want to hurt somebody back. And, uh, and does she ever so much so that um, Brian De Palma in blasting PJ souls with a water hose actually broke PJ souls eardrum in the filming of that scene. So when you see PJ souls character, turn her head to the side and, and go unconscious or, were probably die in the movie. She yeah. actually did go unconscious. She, it was, it knocked her equilibrium out and she, as a person went unconscious and actually had hearing issues for about six months to a year after that. Dang. Um, so yeah, it's pretty hardcore, but the scene that you see in the movie is her actually going unconscious. Pretty cool. Damn. Yeah. Um, 
And then kudos uh, to her for doing her own stunts. Yeah. Right. It probably never to do them again, but, (laughs) um, but yeah. And then, then the movie after, after that scene, like we get uh, some more carnage with, um, you know, John Travolta, uh, his character and Chris getting theirs, uh, sort of a little bit, which felt anticlimactic to me, like them getting theirs. The car accident does look a little goofy with that. Yeah. And it's like, if there was something set up to where like she saw them getting in that car, right? Like she was on a mission to get them, you know, yeah. but it just kind of seems like they drive up behind her. And just because it's a car about to hit her, she like flings it off the road. Right. Yeah. So I never felt like she got that personal vengeance against them that I, w- that I wanted her to have. Unless right? she has some sort of like, because telekinesis doesn't necessarily go along with like mind reading. Right. Um, in but, the book, though, she has yeah. that telepathic connection with. Sid, oh, so okay. maybe, maybe yeah, there's a little carryover there. But to me, within the world of this movie, I would have loved a, you know, cut, you know, cut out 45 seconds of the detention scene, <laughs> the girls and give me a little bit, just a little bit extra of Carrie maybe getting. A, a little taste of personal vengeance because the everything in the gym is just instinctual like she's dead in the eyes right yeah, like it yeah. is just like robot killing terminator style yeah i would have loved a good personal satisfaction from killing nancy Allen <laughs> and john travolta yeah, no, and 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 if anybody deserved it, I mean, it's it's going to be those characters for God's sake. Yeah, um, there but, was a there. I do want to dwell on them real quickly, and this is just a nitpicky filmmaking part. But when they go to get the pig's blood, a there's like a nice wide shot, right? It must have been that it must. My uh, theory is that it was done in two different days. Uh. Because when they're outside, it's like raining, but no one looks wet. And then they get inside the pig thing. And John Travolta looks like he just fell in a lake. And Nancy (laughs) Allen is like, my daughter was like, she's using that super hairspray. They didn't even have that back then. Like full volume hair still. But outside, no one looks wet, but it's just like kind of this rain overlay on the front. So I then wasn't expecting anyone to really look wet. And then John Travolta is just like soaked to the bone. So my one nitpicky on the uh, continuity of in directing there. Yeah. That whole scene is a little, feels a little off. And, and Nancy Allen is so excited about yeah. it. Like I thought they were just going to steal some blood, but the fact that they fucking just bludgeoned a pig with a sledgehammer to get the yeah. blood. Holy shit. Yeah, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, yeah, they go old school with it. Let me show uh, you how to poke a hole in its neck with a tube. There, now you can fill a bucket of blood up. Yeah, just don't hire, do that, kids. Hire, hire, <laughs> hire a rabbi to come along with one of those blades <laughs> and just fucking slice that thing. At least it's quick, painless. Um, but yeah, that uh, that happens, and then. And then after that, we get Carrie returning home to to finally confront her mother. And it's funny. Have we not talked about the mother yet? I don't think we've mentioned Carrie's mom. (laughs) No. Who is uh, an impact on her life. Um, Carrie's mom basically represents all like every crazy, irrational, fundamentalist, religious um, zealot that you you could imagine. Character type. 
Stephen King will return to again and again and again. (laughs) But always, well, like the mist, like that character in the mist, it's a great villain. It's a great villain. Because how do you fight someone's religion or how do you change someone's mind from their belief? Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, that's what that's what we like so much about uh, uh, Prince of Darkness, that they actually do, you know, bring about the, the challenge to the belief and the acceptance of of that, you know, yeah. that difference. It's really cool. Um, but uh, what I really like about Piper Laurie as in her portrayal of uh, Carrie's mom is that. So many people fall into the trap when they're playing a villain to try and and extract some sort of humanity to to somehow make that person not as bad as they're really supposed to be. But even though we get a little bit of a a strange backstory from Carrie's mom, a monologue about how she was impregnated and and how she liked that, you know, the stink of his cheap, you know, roadside whiskey bread. Did you get that? Like she was raped by him because she just would never have sex with him. Yeah, it was a forceful. Like they they were together. They were sleeping in the same bed, but her mom didn't want to have sex. And then he eventually just took it because of his stinky roadside whiskey, you know, stupor. Um, so we get a little bit about that background. It's not really trying to explain anything necessarily, but what I really love is that Piper Laurie plays her as the fucking crazy bitch that she is all the way through and doesn't try to like, look for empathy at all. Like, yeah. that but it's also not awful. over the top crazy. Like that yeah. was kind of what I was expecting. And the first time you see her, she shows up to Sue's house And but not to confront anyone about, you know, bullying at school or anything, just because she's there to do the Lord's work. And she just talks normal like she's not uh, like over the top, like constantly spewing out verses and shit like that. Like she obviously has her her idea of, you know, how how you should live your life. But I never feel it it never feels overbearing. Like, is she abusive? Absolutely. You know, but it's never just this constant drone of craziness. Yeah. It's not like Heath Ledger as the Joker as (laughs) Carrie's mom. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like they her and Carrie have a couple just normal conversations. Yeah. Not everything centered around it. You know, it's always present, but every conversation is not about the lord or or whatever like you know it eventually ends up <laughs> doing yeah. but uh they can just have like normal conversations and that's that's the worst part if you really go back and look at all of the exchanges between Carrie and her mom like for as awful and not just like emotionally, or I guess you would say spiritually abusive her mom is also physically abusive yeah uh to her that um all Carrie ever she it's never like fuck you mom or get out of my face or whatever like she does kind of start to stand on her own once she realizes the the importance of her own power Carrie does but she still is always just wanting her mom's affection like she's saying like hold me mama talk with me mama like she just wants a, a 
a parent. She just wants that connection. It's so tragic. Yeah. And um, we get some really great. We, we haven't mentioned this either. Just real quick. Just really great music in this movie. Um, uh, not not like just modern songs, but um, but the score is fantastic. And he really wanted uh I can't remember the movie that he scored. Maybe it was Reanimator, Bernard uh, Herman, oh. <laughs> with all the extra ends and all that. So yeah. Ber- Bernard Herman did not score this movie. Okay, kind of. He did and he didn't. He died before uh, he could for this movie, and De Palma really wanted him and would have had him, but he died. But uh, De Palma uses the psycho strings. Yes. Uh, in the movie, he uses some like other, straight uh, up, like just oh, yeah. plays the soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's because he's like nothing fit better. Like we could have tried to write something different, but that's what sounded best. And right. he said he he said Bernard Herman would have hated that because he Bernard Herman hated his music being used in any other context than what it was meant to be. Yeah. But, um, but he was dead. So, you know. There you go. But it it, it works to great effect. We get a really great. It's funny when Carrie first goes back into her house to confront her mom. I'm hearing this really sort of slow kind of powerful um, music. And I'm like, why do I recognize those progressions, those note progressions, chord progressions? And it's because it's it's like a hymn. It's a a hymn structure. And uh, for having gone to a Lutheran school all those years, like I, I. recognize that and it really had it was the perfect music for that so yeah really great music really nice revenge especially when (laughs) i don't know what it's used for but there is apparently some kind of kitchen tool that's about like an inch and a half wide perfectly flat doesn't taper all the way down it's not a knife it's just a flat thing yeah um like it's like a really narrow I don't even know what he use that for, but he she sends it right into her mom's gut. Oh yeah, it might be a uh, yeah. I couldn't tell what some of those items were. Right, the kitchen you know kitchen utensils from the seventies are very different from kitchen <laughs> utensils of the twenty tens. But yeah, it might have been like a uh, like a frosting spreader. Yeah. Oh might yeah, have been yeah. One of the things. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah, but you're I right. Was yeah. Really, I like uh, was really surprised. I just thought the end of this movie was way more chaotic than it is. I was really anticipating. I mean, it just, I just didn't remember a lot of stuff from this movie. Like the, like I was saying about the mom earlier, because I think I just care, hold on to that. They're all going to laugh at you, you know? So it's like, Oh, the mom's always like that. Yeah. No, the one part, she was like that in every other part. She's pretty even keeled and talks normally. Um, and I was like, oh, once the pig blood happens, then this thing is like in high gear for half an hour. And she just kind of leaves the school burning and then goes and takes a bath. And I was like, oh, I don't yeah. uh, I don't remember that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of good surprises for me in this movie. I'm glad I misremembered a lot of stuff. And there's some. Yeah. And, and there's some stuff that they that they wanted to do that maybe would have been more chaotic like at the end when the house collapses in on itself they that's according to the book it's supposed to be like this rain of stones comes down on the house and and knocks it down to the ground and they had this conveyor belt set up and they were going to try it 
Um, but the rocks kept getting caught in the conveyor belt and it was stopping it. So they couldn't get it to work. So they just said, fuck it, just make it collapse. And it was four o'clock in the morning. The cops were, had been called. They were on their way out. It's 4 a.m. They've all been shooting for hours and they're just like, let's just go home. And they were all depressed about it. And then they saw it the next day and they're like, this look actually looks pretty good. Like yeah. we don't need stones raining from the heavens. I mean, yeah, you got what was going on. Yeah. And um, then we get, this is one of the more interesting, it's just a little thing, little anecdote, but the actress that plays uh, Sue's mom is actually Amy Irving's mother and uh, in real life. Oh, and she looks in our familiar too. Uh, yeah, she's been in, in a lot of other things. Um, she has a different last name. It's not Irving. Um, okay. But uh, so they are. Um, the last scene is this weird sort of awesome dream sequence where Amy Irving is just sort of walking down the street and she sees in this really dreamy peaceful music is playing and she sees like a for sale sign where Carrie's house was. And it says, uh, Carrie white rots in hell. And it's really got that Stephen King creepiness to it. Mm -hmm. That sort of unsettled Stephen King flavor. It's, it's really kind of sadistic and creepy. Yeah. Um, and then of course we get that great, uh, uh, jump scare where Carrie's hand comes out of the ground and sissy space it, God bless her. Well, was so attached to the part that she's like, no, don't you can't Brian De Palma. You can't use an extra for this. It's got to be my hand. It's got to be me under there. So they buried her, literally buried her or he had her husband bury her because that way he didn't have to feel bad about it. And she would, you know, they're having to set up the scene and she they would just hear from under the rocks like, are we almost ready? They're like, yeah, we're, we're almost there, sissy. Just hang on. Oh and uh, so then we get that bit. But what I'm getting at is that scene ends with the character of Sue like shooting up in her bed and screaming and her mother is there. And the character of Sue has obviously had a real disconnect from reality. And she's, she's gone almost completely crazy. Yeah. When Amy Irving shot up in her bed and was screaming, it was so violent. And so her, her breakdown was so intense that I don't know if you can hear it or if they cover it in the music, but her mom actually yells, Amy, like actually says her daughter's name instead of Sue, her characters. You know? <laughs> and uh, because she was so as it, her parental sting, instincts took over her acting, you right. know, uh, prowess. And she just, you know, was afraid for her daughter in real life because it was such a, a reaction. It's pretty cool. Wow. Um. But uh, yeah, so then it ends in that sort of like uh, creepy way. But here's the thing, though. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is kind of important. Carrie kills her mom, yeah. you know, impales her with all that stuff. And then what are we led to believe that Carrie dies when the house collapses? On it is itself? a very uh, unclimactic or some people say anticlimactic <laughs> uh, death, but yeah, it is kind of a, yeah, just cause her eyes close, I guess I'm now, Oh, she's dead now, I guess. Yeah. But she yeah. got stabbed in the back a little bit. Oh, she did. Um, That's true. Okay. So but she, I mean, complications like, from that. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, I did like how she kind of uh, crucifies her mom the yeah. same way. 
because she's got her little closet altar that she gets locked into with the creepiest Jesus I've ever seen in my life. I don't know where <laughs> they got this Jesus statue, but it's got like big bug eyes. Like the eyes are weird on it. And it it's, almost looked like it has that, like, it's made of that weird short felt, like hard felt they would make like troll dolls out of in the old <laughs> days, like Norwegian yeah. troll dolls. Not the cool, uh, colorful hair ones, plastic ones you get now, but like the real old rosy cheek trolls, <laughs> yeah. if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the weirdest, but they're, but the, both of those are pretty much in the same pose, her mom and this. Yeah, yeah, then it's like she just like brings the house down on them. Yeah, you know, and I, I it's obviously as a casual viewer, we're supposed to believe that that's Jesus. But I actually believe that it's supposed to be a, a saint. Um, and I oh. can't remember which saint it is. If it's Saint Sebastian, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But apparently there was a saint that unfortunately for him looked like that. <laughs> Yeah, with uh, <laughs> just that frizzy ass hair. But yeah, that that doll does sort of resemble her mother with that crazy ass hair and everything. So I'd have to look into that further. But yeah, I your casual viewer, I'm including myself, thought that it was Jesus, you know, but just like you said, the freakiest Jesus ever. Yeah. Um. But yeah, apparently, I, I don't know if, if they're supposed to be a saint. That's yeah. Yeah. It's um. I've just never seen anyone do that. Like. I have this very specific saint I pray to. Well, oh, well, that's that's I mean, for if you want to talk about like um, like uh, Greek or like um, uh, just sort of uh, what I want to say, Orthodox community. Yeah. Every every family has their own saint. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what so, a perk. Yeah. It's your patron saint. Yeah. Oh, OK. So oh, that's what that means. So I don't know if that I mean. I don't know if they intended anybody to guess who I think it's like St. Sebastian or something like that. But um, if there's some Catholics out there, which, which saint has like uh, the flowy uh, amber colored Robert Plant hair <laughs> and bug eyes. Um, the patron saint of rocking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, patron saint of pants bulges. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so so um, the uh, the movie is as far as is my impression of it. I I don't know how I get lucky in doing this. It's not intentional, but for whatever reason, I spread out my viewings of this movie by years every time I see it, and I'm yeah. so glad that I do because it's so good. It's so fun to watch. It's so heartbreaking, um, and stylistic or uh, stylish. And it's just, uh, there's really not another movie like Carrie. There's not another horror movie that that has that Carrie vibe. No, Uh, unless it was written by um, Lawrence D. Cohen, because that guy went on to pretty much only do Stephen King stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, the guy who wrote this, he wrote this. Uh, He also wrote the remake of Carrie. So he wrote both Carrie's. Uh, he wrote, he did, uh, this Peter Straub guy, uh, had a novel called ghost story. Uh, but then he also did the TV miniseries it, he wrote that he wrote the Tommy knockers. And then he wrote a segment for, there was a TV series called nightmares and dreamscapes based on Stephen King books. So this guy has besides ghost story has only adapted Stephen King. 
Yeah, some really like, good, some not not too good. It's amazing the Tommy Knockers is not, but I could say that about the books as well. So I have read both those books. Yeah, he found a really comfy place on those coattails and just rode right along <laughs> yeah, with dude. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, good for him. Um yeah, no, I uh I, I think um I I have it's interesting you bring up the writing. I have no problem with this script at all. I no. mean, obviously we're we're coming from a pretty good bit of source material, but um the, the script moves along just fine. Um the performances are great, loaded with style, um, and still resonates. And you can have a little fun with it being dated, like that's you're allowed that. It's it's fine. It's it does kind of come across as like a bit of a time capsule, but that just only adds to the fun of it. Yeah. Um, but I think now I'm going to go out on a limb here. High school will do that. Like any, you look at any yearbook, like that's a pretty damn, you, you kind of dictates culture as we say, you know? So, yes. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say this as a final thought, which is, is something positive. Uh, I, I don't know this in large numbers, but I know of a couple of people who like this movie a lot that I think that it it resonates with people who um, face some sort of difficulty in their everyday lives. I think that they see what, and I have it written down. Uh, what did I, how did I put it? I I wrote that um, I say, and I want to get this right. Um, that I feel that. Uh, Oh, I got it here somewhere. It feels like it wants to be a hero's movie. It just never gets the chance. And it really does, in a way, feel like Carrie is some sort of hero, like some she's some sort of heroic figure, but that the poor thing just got dealt the cards that she did. And that's what sucks about it. But it, it does, even though it is this, you know, at first glance, this movie about, you know, this girl and her telekinetic powers and her crazy ass mom and all that stuff. It really is about somebody overcoming their, you know, what's, what's being put upon them. So yeah. she is a hero in a way. And I think that Carrie in an indirect or direct way is a hero to some folks out there who uh, have to deal with more challenges than the rest of us do. Yeah. And good for you. If that's your hero, then let her be your hero. Well, whatever you need, whatever, yeah. you know, if, if you look to her and you say they made fun of her and she rose above it, <laughs> regardless of how that played out, then whatever it takes for you to be inspired, you do it. Yeah. Put Carrie on the $10 bill. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah. That's why not? Why not? I, yeah. Um. No, I blood I Terminator carry though. That's yeah. The one I oh yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. Um, uh, the power of an image and you always, I, I'm, I've never said this to you in person, but I, you pick some really good images to use for our uh, social media websites <laughs> when to yeah. represent these movies. Yeah. Amazon prime did a little bit of their own. When you rent this movie off of Amazon prime, it's like the background is all dark and it's just Carrie when she's walking down the street and she's got like the blood on the forehead, <laughs> but the face is clear and she's just got that glare in her eyes yeah. and it's, Badass. <laughs> so cool. Very cool. One on Apple TV is like an illustration. It looks really cool though. Like oh, really? it really pops. Yeah. Oh. Huh. It's really nice. 
Yeah. I'm sure there's a ton of awesome, like fan made carry stuff. Oh God. You know? Well, and as we've talked about before, I mean, even if you want to talk Nicholas Cage and Mandy, I mean, you cover somebody head to toe in blood and they just look fucking cool. Yep. I mean, that's the truth of it. So I might start uh, doing that more. <laughs> I've thought about that before. Like there's no, there's no law that keeps you from just like going out someplace with like fake blood all over yourself. No. Like if you wanted to go to the bar and you got some jeans on and a white t-shirt and it's just blood splattered all over the place, <laughs> you can do that. Sure. Yeah. Someone may call the cops, but it's <laughs> right. worth the risk and the story would be great. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's wrap this one up. So yep. that was Carrie from 1976. Uh, Nicole, happy birthday. Thanks for the suggestion. I just realized as we're recording this, it is also prom season. So it's actually just oh. a good one to do anyway. Yeah. Um, Welcome to our prom mini series. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's one episode long, <laughs> but a great success. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was Carrie from 1976. Please join us next week. We're getting uh, still staying in the 70s, but getting back to basics uh, in more ways than one. It's from 1979. It's called Driller Killer. Never seen it. Never really even heard of it until you brought it up. So I have never seen it. This is one of those that falls into the category that I've said before that I feel ashamed that I haven't seen it because it is a real cult classic in, yeah. in the horror genre. It's I super saw the exciting. trailer. It looks real low budget. It oh, looks yeah. real campy. I I can't wait. Yeah, we're going to have fun. This is this is kind of, yeah, a return to form, old school, low budget, you know, blood fest. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, check out our website, slumberpodcastmassacre.com. Uh, it's got all our socials and all that garbage. Just shoot us a email at slumberpodcast at gmail.com. Huge thanks to our patrons for helping make this possible. Uh, you the best. Uh, next up, Drill Killer 1979. Tim, do you got anything else to say about Carrie? Just another happy birthday to Nicole. Thank you so much for. Uh, suggesting such a great movie. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have the happiest birthday and a great year ahead. And um, we're just so thankful that you listen to us um, wherever you may be. Uh, we appreciate your your fanship and the, the fun that you're having with the show. And thank you so much for being a part of it. Absolutely. I second it. And also, Tim, don't call me a dumb shit. <laughs> All right, Tim, I'll punch you next week. Bye. Bye.